Listener Production. Hey, Tom here. And just a warning that the next minute and then the second half of this episode includes material that might be disturbing for some listeners. We're discussing the incredible but harrowing work that our police investigators do to stop online child abuse networks. They're reviled, they're hated, they're hunted, they're pursued. They're the lowest form of life. It's only natural that child sex offenders will gravitate towards each other, that they'll form networks to support each other. So that's part of an interview we're going to bring you with one of Australia's most experienced investigators, John Rouse. He's going to explain how his team infiltrated and then controlled an online criminal network, which led to the arrest of the people that set it up. We're in there for years. And over time, you gain quite a great appreciation of the network structure, the who's who in the zoo of the administrative. This is organised crime. You've got a head administrator and then you've got all of these admins underneath them that have roles. That interview after today's headlines with Katrina Blowers. Hello, Katrina. It is Wednesday, the 16th of November. New South Wales is facing its biggest flood response in its history. That is according to the boss of the State Emergency Service. The New South Wales SES are leading one of what would be the biggest operations in relation to flood response across New South Wales in its history. Yeah, it's a crazy scene. That's Commissioner Carlene York. So the rain is slowing, but the waters are still rising with 25 evacuation orders still in place. So Cowra, Forbes, Condoblin and a number of other smaller towns are flooding. So uh, Gunnedah and Walgut up further north. Here's Yugawa resident Jeanette Noble explaining what it was like inside her house when it was swept off its foundations. Just a huge wave and it just came and, and it sort of lifted the whole house up. Oh, how frightening and um, super shocking scenes too from a town of 700 people that saw 140 rescues. The force of the water takes away the driveways, the grass, the tanks have all gone. We've got one tank against the tree. Yeah, that's another local in Yugara, Daryl Coleman, also speaking to the ABC. Two people are missing from that town and the Lachlan River there is continuing to rise, which the Bureau says will push Forbes... Uh, down the river to its worst flood in 70 years today. That rain is expected to clear from today. Uh, Unfortunately, though, thunderstorms are forecast to return on Saturday afternoon. Mm, So some of these towns like Forbes are flooding, you know, several times within just a few weeks. So it's... Such a devastating scene and people can't get back on their feet. And when you think about the force of that water to take entire homes off their foundations, I mean, just terrifying for those, many of them elderly residents who remained inside. Well, lots of them couldn't afford flood insurance because the premiums had gone up to $30,000 or $40,000 a year. Anthony Albanese has spoken with Chinese President Xi Jinping in a much-anticipated meeting on the sidelines of the G20 summit. Yeah, so there they were in Bali, down in Nusa Dua, and they talked for 32 minutes. Um, The Chinese leader said that the Australia-China relationship deserves to be cherished. Uh, That's nice to hear. Yeah. (laughs) 
a lot has been made about, you know, um, us kind of being put in our place a little bit. You know, we're not on the same, I guess we know that we're not really on the same standing as the US, which got a three hour meeting. And that was the very first thing that Xi Jinping did when he arrived in Bali was meet with Joe Biden. We had to wait. We also had to wait to be invited. Uh, but afterwards, Albanese said he didn't shy away from the big issues. I put forward Australia's position when it comes to the blockages in our trading relationship. I put forward the differences that we have on human rights issues, including Xinjiang, as well the cases of Chang Lei and Dr Yong. Yeah, so Dr Yong and Chang Lei are both Australians detained in China. We want answers on that. They also spoke about climate change and the war in Ukraine. It's the first uh, minister between an Australian leader and the Chinese leader since Malcolm Turnbull met the Chinese leader back in 2016. So a long time in the freezer. Um, I mean, you can't expect us to get the same reception as the US, but it does seem to be in parallel um, that China are opening up to both of us at the same time. I mean, both you know America mm. and Australia have um, had a change of government. The current governments are, I guess, a bit less hostile towards China, but there seems to have been a a fairly significant change of heart on their side as well. You remember in 2020 when this crisis was at its worst that they sent a list to the Australian media of 14 demands on what Australia should do. And we haven't kowtowed on those demands. We have somewhat held our line, but I think we've dialed down the rhetoric. And I think China have also realised that some of the products like wheat and coal that we sell them are really important to their economy. Well, I guess some good news if you've been following along with this latest COVID wave, the Chief Medical Officer thinks it might be over soon. It should peak soon and drop quickly. That's Paul Kelly. So there's been a 47% increase in the number of COVID cases in the last week, but that's less than the July peak. And as Paul Kelly said, it could be gone soon. Comes as a new vaccine from Pfizer, Um, has been approved. It protects against two strains of the virus. It will be available as a booster for people aged 18 and older from December 12. And here's a topic of conversation I know you love, Tom. Uh, Novak Djokovic, he's back in the news. Uh, That's because he's going to be allowed to play in January's Australian Open. What a difference almost a year makes. Yeah, I think personally this is really good news. Um, So we no longer have the widespread vaccine mandates, particularly on international travellers. Again, we've had a a change of government. So when it all went down in January, he he was detained on arrival in those dramatic scenes late at night. Then he was locked up in a hotel. He came out and won his court case against the federal government. So they had to bring in a ministerial intervention. Alex Hawke was the minister at the time. That came with a three-year ban The new minister has now overturned that ban. Um, This report came out of The Guardian yesterday, then it was confirmed by other sources. So they didn't make a big public announcement, but this is the decision that's been made. And I just think that was such a dishevelled overreaction last time. You know, if we weren't going to let him in, we should have done that before he came, not after he'd arrived. He deserves to be treated with respect. He's one of the most successful competitors in our Australian Open ever. And I hope he wins in January. 
Look, I, I agree with all of that, but I also think Djokovic didn't cover himself in glory in the way that he handled it, at least initially. You know, he um, was on social media kind of being super sketchy about whether he was vaccinated or not. And we did have pretty clear rules then about, you know, needing everyone who came to Australia to be vaccinated. And then um, the medical grounds were because he said he'd had COVID. Uh, so I think he's still got a bit of work to do to win back some Australian fans. Yeah, I think I think some people were really happy with the decision. They didn't want him here. You know, we were going through a crisis and they wanted everyone to get on board with being vaccinated. He clearly wasn't. But um, yeah, I, I hope those people would agree that a year on, we can let it go and mm. have the best tournament possible. Briefly, billionaire Mike Cannon-Brooks has been victorious at AGL's annual general meeting. Four of his independent director candidates have been appointed to the energy giant's board by shareholders. Uh, Cannon-Brooks has been on a campaign to make AGL's future much greener at one point, even offering to buy the company. And Russia's launched a wave of missiles across Ukraine, striking residential buildings in Kiev. Um, that's really concerning. And a second Australian has been identified as a victim of South Korea's Halloween crowd crush. Stand by because Trump is expected to announce he will run for the 2024 mm. presidency today. And a big milestone, the world's population has hit 8 billion. Is that good news? What do you reckon? <sighs> oh, gosh. It scares me a little bit. Not for the environment. But you've certainly added to those numbers in the last two years, so... <laughs> You're part of that, Tom. Yeah, we're both part of the problem. All right, in just a moment, incredible interview with the Queensland detective. So this is a recording of a police interview with a convicted child abuser called Shannon McCool, who was sentenced to 35 years jail. You took pictures? Yep. Have you committed these at against them, correct? Yes. And with some with videos as well? Yes. With some, okay. What was the purpose of that? Um, originally, I guess it was just for me. Um, and then, you know, people I spoke to would, would ask. Um, so I made some stuff to them. So that man, Shannon McCool, ran an online child abuse network called The Love Zone. And what he ultimately failed to realise was that police had infiltrated the network and by 2014, they were administering it. That incredible operation led to the rescue of 85 children and also hundreds of arrests. And that audio and this story is now part of a new true crime podcast by our colleagues here at Listener, called The Children in the Pictures. This series follows the twists and turns of Task Force Argos as they infiltrate one of the largest online child abuse networks the world had ever seen. Yeah, so it's an amazing new podcast series and the investigator at the centre of that operation is going to do an interview right here and now on The Briefing, but we encourage you to go and check out the full series, Children in the Pictures. It's so important that we understand the work that these incredible police officers do. So Detective Inspector John Rouse has been running Task Force Argos for Queensland Police and that unit began 25 years ago. Their work has convicted thousands of child abusers here and overseas. John, thank you for joining us. How do these criminals work and how much has what they do changed 
since you started investigating them in the late 90s. When I started, the the range of communication platforms that child sex offenders have were pretty limited. You know, you had bulletin boards, you had internet relay chat, IRC, back in the late 90s. Obviously, you had email, but there was a lot of work done by law enforcement in IRC. And then MSN Messenger came out a little bit after that. Originally, IRC was used for communication between child sex offenders and the distribution of child abuse material. So Argos was set up to be able to move across those state and you know, inter-Queensland boundaries. Progressively, over the 20 years that we learned, we, uh, we grew from three to 40, just dealing with online child exploitation. You know, like we re- really learned a lot about the psychology of the offender, but we learned a lot about hierarchical structures, the roles that people play, and we learn a lot about what we call social engineering. And social engineering is where we master the art of convincing child sex offenders that we are a like-minded mm. person, that we have a sexual interest in children as well. But realistically, as the as the internet grew and it went fully mobile onto onto phones, it's now there's so many apps, there's so many many communication platforms that child sex offenders can use. Our law enforcement network globally has had to try to keep pace and grow at the same rate. Is it mostly about sharing these images and profiting from that? Or is there a large part of these networks that is actually about distributing the children and physically abusing them? Largely the investigations that we deal with, there is no financial gain. Okay, The actual image or the video of the child is the commodity and it's highly prized by child sex offenders. So in this instance where we're talking about Shannon McCool, he exhibited power and control because he had access to children and that made child sex offenders revere him because he actually had hands-on with children. In many of the cases going way back into the early 2000s, I've dealt with multiple instances where child sex offenders will tag the child. They'll put a, put a, a piece of paper on the child in the image with their tag name on it. That shows that they've got that access and control. Networks, there's a range of things. So if you think along the lines of how does how does society feel about child sex offenders, I would hope that overarchingly you'd get a 90% plus response that they're reviled, they're hated, they're hunted, they're pursued, they're the lowest form of life. It's only natural that child sex offenders will gravitate towards each other, that they'll form networks to support each other, to provide advice, to avoid law enforcement detection, advice on how to access children safely so that they won't be picked up. So there's that side. The spin-offs from that are that they do share child abuse material in their networks. In many cases, you can't get into the networks unless you share unique content with the groups. And it's also then used to target. Right at the moment, we've got a societal crisis going on with child sex offenders sextorting our kids on utilising apps like Instagram to gain access to them. And then once the child produces content for them, they turn it against them to produce more content. So it's really evolved into a fairly sinister place at the moment. Let's talk about how sophisticated your investigations have become And one of the tools that's just absolutely mind-blowing is actually running your own network. So you did this for six months in 2014. Tell us how that works. How are you actually participating in these networks and how do you manage the ethical considerations of doing that? 
let me give you the mindset for how we go in. We go in to rescue children. The networks are sharing material that depicts the violent sexual abuse of children. And our role is to intercept that, get our victim identification experts like Adele, who features in the documentary, to try to put their skills to use to find the kids. That's, you know, that's the children in the pictures. That's where that title came from. That's our role. We infiltrate, we monitor, we intercept, and we locate kids. That's our mission objective. In both of, look, in all of the network infiltrations we've done, we do them on a long-term basis. We're in there for years. And over time, you gain quite a great appreciation of the network structure, the who's who in the zoo of the administrative. This is organised crime. Right? You've got a head administrator and then you've got all of these admins underneath them that have roles, um, vetting membership, vetting content, kicking members, maintaining operational security, keeping the board secure. So we understand over time how that works. And because of our infiltration, we gain a level of acceptance. Over time, my experience is that if with the dedication of the law enforcement capability globally, these people make mistakes, we pick up the mistakes and then we move into a phase of taking out the administrators and arresting them, which we did in TLZ, ultimately leading to the head administrator. When we got to that phase in this operation, largely that entire board was in its administrative structure was run by law enforcement globally. So how far did you go in participating? You know, if you take over that account and you're administering this network, I imagine that means you're having to supply images. So how does that work? We run under what's called a controlled operation. Any form of activity that law enforcement do that is illegal, for example, doing buy busts, you know, with drugs, you'd be aware of law enforcement going undercover to purchase and supply drugs. Mm. They run they run under control operations. So we set up a control operation for this. Uh, it has approvals right up to a judge, um, an assistant commissioner, and the chair of the Crime and Misconduct Commission. We explain what our mission objective is, and then they either authorise the conduct or not. If you did not supply content to this board, you were kicked from the board. Mm. So there's your ethical dilemma. Get in there and rescue children or not. So ultimately, once you've established a presence in these networks, obviously a very credible one, but also tightly controlled, as you've explained, how does that then lead to the arrests of these criminals? Well, like I said, they ultimately they'll make mistakes. So, And that comes down to just dedication and really good detective work. So if we utilised Ski or the self-pronounced head honcho of the love zone, Shannon McCool, as an example, Ski utilised certain phrases and mannerisms in the way he communicated and he consistently used those. That was picked up by our victim identification team leader, Paul Griffiths, and he has very very lateral thinking uh, processes that he applies to pretty much anything he does. But he just decided that he would do some open source or OSINT uh, searches on some of the phrases that McCool would use because they were unique. He used the term hires quite regularly, H-I-Y-A-S. Just by going down that particular rabbit hole, ultimately Paul identified an advertisement for the sale of a car that linked to South Australia, had a linkage to a Facebook account for McCool, and that ultimately was his undoing. 
So it's just about being in for the long haul and looking at everything that they do. The other interesting really thing you've shared as part of the podcast is the way that you forensically analyze the photos looking for cues. And that might be a brand of nail polish or the the color of the trim on a car door. Can you explain how that part of the investigation works and ultimately leads to rescuing children or arresting criminals? Yeah, look, ultimately it's reverse engineering a crime scene. If you think about that scene that that child's being raped in as a crime scene, we don't know where it is. We can see the crimes happening, but we have absolutely no idea where that crime scene is. All you've got are the clues that are left in it. So if it's audio, it might be accents. It might be, in one particular instance, it was a radio station that was detected to Germany. Mm. It's PowerPoints, it's product labels, it's even going down to the granular of, of body markings and moles and tan lines, botanical specimens, bird noises. All of those things are all that we are left with to work with to try to find that child. And that's where the skills of victim identification come in. And so what makes you want to, to share these stories to let us in on the techniques you're using to do this work? And what do you hope people listening to this podcast and learning more about your work understand? Law enforcement understand how difficult this work is, but the public don't, the government don't, industry don't know what we're dealing with. How do you tell this story in a way that you don't see anything in the documentary? But I think that the filmmakers have portrayed it in such a way that you do grasp an understanding of of how challenging this is for us. So the reason for that is that, you know, we want industry to watch this documentary and understand that they've got a responsibility a role to play in protecting children on the applications that they develop. Meta, Zuckerberg, for example, is taking minimal steps to secure his platforms to make them safe for children. You know, they're they're great big playgrounds for child sex offenders. So it's it's calling them out to, to step into the game and help us. Hopefully, I know it's a difficult listen and it's a difficult watch for parents, but equally they might understand that when we ask them to take an interest in their children and their safe use of devices and applications, we hope they'll listen because the threat is real. It just takes years of dedicated work by passionate, committed individuals across the world to bring these networks down. So our hope by participating was that we might raise some greater awareness about the battle that's going on behind the net to try to make it a safer place for everybody, but particularly for our kids. That was Detective Inspector John Rouse, head of Task Force Argos. And that was just a really brief snapshot into the work that they do. That last bit was really interesting, a great explanation of why they want us, the public, to better understand what they do and what they're up against. So to find out more, listen to the full series, The Children in the Pictures. It's hosted by an amazing guy called Akim Dev. You can get on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, any other podcast app, including Listener which is the app that we work with here. You can download it for free and get across a whole bunch of amazing interviews, stories, and podcast series. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're going to speak directly to the people hit hard by the Central West New South Wales floods. Listener.